I mean, you guys can have a seat. Um, if you're here for the first time, we are so thankful that you're with us today. Um, before we jump into our text, um, I want to take about seven or eight minutes and just bring up three big things in the life of our church. Um, and the first is Kids Week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so June 1st through the 3rd, uh, y'all, that's in two and a half weeks, we have Kids Week. Uh, we do Kids Week for two primary reasons. Uh, one, discipleship, and two, mission. You know, first, with discipleship, we are passionate about investing in the next generation for Jesus. We want our kids to love Jesus, and we want them to love the church. We want our kids to be sharp gospel arrows that will be sent out into the world with fierceness and passion. You know, one of the uh, many dreams for our kids' ministry is that we would raise up future missionaries and church planters and worship leaders and business owners and nurses and teachers and moms and dads that will leverage everything that they have in, in their entire life for Jesus. We, we pray for our kids to have really boring testimonies and then understand that following Jesus is the most exciting thing that they can do with their life. And Kids Week is one of the many ways we seek to make this happen. Uh, and the second reason we do Kids Week is because of, like I said, mission. We are passionate about reaching our city for Christ. We are a missionally urgent people, and we want to do whatever it takes to reach the people around us, and Kids Week is a very easy way to reach kids and families in our city. Y'all, we're not about gimmicks here. Uh, we, we don't hold back that we are all about Jesus, but I am saying families know that kids are out of school, uh, and it's safe, it's fun, and also not to mention it's free. And so the hope is that just like every week in our kids' ministry, the hope is that the kids will love it so much that they will drag their parents back to church. Again, June 1st through the 3rd, I want you guys to be thinking and praying about who you will be inviting to Kids Week. And so these next two and a half weeks are full speed ahead to Kids Week. So invite all the sports teams, the classmates, the neighborhood kids, and let's do whatever we can to get as many kids at Kids Week as possible. Uh, this is one of the many tools, again, we have as a church to reach families in our community for Christ, and so let's leverage this opportunity. So that's the first big thing. And the, the next two things are actually kind of intertwined with the vision of our summer series in John. You know, our, our new series uh, that starts today called The Upper Room. This, this series is Jesus' last teaching to his disciples before his death. And so in essence, in this new series, he's giving instructions about what the community of Jesus' followers should look like. And so New City, this is important for us as a church because this is not, a, church is not just a Sunday service. The church is a community of people that love Jesus and love one another and live on mission together. And so which leads me to the next, uh, next two big things I want to bring up. Number two, our membership class. It's this Friday night, May 20th. Uh, it's not going to be hosted in here. It's going to be hosted in another church close by. You know, we really uh, value membership here. And not because we're some sort of religious club, but because we believe it's important to know and care for one another. We want to know, like, who are the people that call New City their church? Like, coming to a service doesn't make this your church. What makes, this, what makes New City your church is being known and cared for by the people of our church. It's coveting together and being committed to one another. And at our membership class this Friday, you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at a deeper dive into what we're all about. Again, we value membership because it keeps us accountable to one another and it helps us to know who really knows what we're all about and our vision and our beliefs and our core values. You know, we have a heart for every single person to be cared for and discipled. 
And everyone in our groups, hopefully, will get a taste of this. But especially as our church grows, we're going to prioritize our members for many of those extra layers of care. Again, so this Friday night, May 20th, we'll have the opportunity for you to hear more about our church and next steps for becoming a member. And then lastly, number three, um, somewhat in line with that, our summer rhythm for groups. And it was going to begin after Kids Week. Um, so during the school year, we, we always meet in homes, uh, but during the summer, we all come together on Wednesday nights in just one large group here. And if you haven't been in a group, uh, this is a really great entry point for getting more plugged into our community. You know, the hope for our church is actually to progressively get smaller <laughs> and not bigger. And what I mean by that is that the more connected you get to our church, the more smaller it becomes. And I personally love this summertime gathering because um, I get to see more of you throughout the week, uh, and that's just fun for me. But it also gives us an opportunity to be, ta- be taught by other people uh, in our church, and it helps us to get to know more people. And so I don't know about you, but every week it seems like I'm meeting new people here on Sunday. And I know most of you, and I know that a vast majority of you have been here for less than a year. And this midweek time, it gives us an opportunity to really slow down and spend more time with one another and get to just really get to know each other at a deeper level. Um, because we really do. We want to know you. Uh, we, do, we value authentic relationships. It's one of our core values. And this really happens and flourishes during our midweek group times. So there it is. That, those are our three big things. Uh, Kids week, our membership class, and our summer, uh, summer groups midweek gathering coming up. All of which play into much of the heart of our new summer series called The Upper Room, starting today in John 13 through the 17th, or John, John 13 through 17. And so as we're going through the book of John, trying, as we were going through the book of John, trying to get to the cross uh, by Easter, uh, this section, it was just too rich just to fly over. And so I'm excited that we can spend the entire summer going slowly through these five chapters. These are just so rich, and they're going to be really helpful for us on how to be the church. Now, we've titled, uh, we've titled it The Upper Room because it's known as The Upper Room Discourse or The Upper Room Teaching. You know, I didn't make up the name. Um, some theologian that I don't really know, they, they did that. They came up with it. Uh, some have also called it The Farewell Discourse, but it's more popularly known as The Last Supper. And so these five chapters in this series, it's one long teaching from Jesus when Jesus has his 12 disciples the night before his death. And Jesus, in the book of John, he has modeled for us that the closer you get to Jesus, the smaller his circles get. And here we see in Jesus' final teaching to his inner circles of his 12 disciples. And so just imagine this, like Jesus leading a city group in a home, saying his final goodbyes. Um, It's a smaller setting. It's more intimate. Everybody knows each other. They know everybody's names. They know their passions. They know their quirks. And something I just want to remind you of is that back in chapter 12, about four days prior to this, um, Jesus came into town riding on a donkey. And everybody at that time was, was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, um, even the king of Israel. And then he gave his final public teaching that we, that we have recorded at the end of John 12, saying in verse 25 and 26, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And then he continued teaching, and then it says he departed and he hid himself from them. So they were ready to crown him as king on Palm Sunday, 
Jesus then teaches them about serving, and then Jesus just disappears. And then we pick up today with our text that gives us a picture of serving with Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John 13. And so I'm going to tell you where we're going um, with our time in just a minute, but let's first look at verse 1 of chapter 13. This is what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, we kind of see the setting. It's the Passover feast. Jesus is about to sit down with his disciples for a celebratory supper supper that represents God's faithfulness to his people. But at the same time, Jesus knows that his time is up. His hour has come. It's time for Jesus to go to the cross. It says in verse 1, his hour has come to depart out of this world. And so Jesus wants to do whatever he can to love them and prepare his disciples for when he's gone. It says in that same verse, in verse 1, it says he loved them to the end. And so like we've said for our entire series and all that we're about to see in our text today, Jesus is preparing them for how to live a life with Jesus without him physically in their presence. And so I want you to think about this uh, in context of what just happened four days prior to this. When Jesus just came in riding into town on a donkey with everybody shouting and celebrating, uh, ready to crown him as king and their Messiah. And so in many ways, at this Last Supper in the upper room, they're sitting there, the disciples are sitting there with Jesus, who they see as their long-awaited king. They see Jesus as their fearless leader who's going to protect them from their political mess. And I'm, sure what you, and I'm not sure what you would expect if you were to go to dinner with a king, but I'd expect a table full of lavish food on silver platters and servants bringing the king whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. But that's not what we see here. In fact, what we see in our passage is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And so Jesus, in some ways, is portraying himself as a servant. Jesus is a different type of king. He's a king, but not yet a prideful king. Jesus is a servant king, leading us to our main idea. Jesus is a humble servant king. And I want to stop here for a second and just address the radical difference of this type of leadership than what we would expect to see from a leader that just wowed a crowd by raising a dead man to life. So let's just think about this. Okay, so just imagine getting invited to Tom Brady's house for dinner. Seven-time Super Bowl winner, Tampa Bay star. Uh, it's a big deal to get invited to, his, to dinner with him. Like you're hoping to get his autograph, a picture with him while you're there. You're just excited to have dinner with him. And I just kind of imagine the disciples in somewhat of a similar vein, just super excited to have dinner with Jesus, their king who just raised a dead man to life with half the city cheering for him, excited about what Jesus is doing. And these guys, these disciples, they're in his inner circle. In fact, in the book of Luke, at this dinner, we see that the disciples at this moment, they were arguing over who was the greatest. So they're excited to be in Jesus' inner circle, thinking that they're a big deal. So just imagine, again, going to dinner with Tom Brady and you're just beyond excited about it, thinking that you're a big deal and you show up a little early and you walk into his house and Tom Brady is in there cleaning toilets and scrubbing the floors, getting ready for your arrival while his hired wait staff are just kind of out on the veranda 
uh, maybe out on the boat with their feet propped up, just in kind of enjoying the sunshine. And then Tom looks at you, so excited for you to be there, and says to you, I don't want my crew to serve you. No, I'm going to serve you myself. This is what it means to be a leader. I think we'd have to agree we'd be a little shocked. Like, that's not exactly what we'd expect when you show up to a dinner party hosted by Tom Brady. But what we see here with Jesus is him modeling to his disciples what type of life they are to lead. They're to lead a life of humility and service. And so Jesus today in our text, he gives us a model of biblical leadership. Leading like Jesus doesn't pass on the dirty work. Leading like Jesus doesn't graduate from the grind and doesn't avoid picking up the towel to wash the feet of others. No, leading like Jesus is filled with the life of service. It doesn't expect to be served, but to serve. And Jesus models that doing the task um, that was traditionally left for servants, showing us that Jesus is our humble servant king. And so that said, let's go ahead and read the next few verses and we're going to read some, I'm going to teach some, and we're going to make it about halfway through our, uh, make it about, we're going to make it all the way through our passage, and then we're going to have four points on the back end of our time. And so let's keep reading and look at verses two to five. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so we see here that uh, Jesus is in the middle of their meal. He gets up, he grabs a towel, a bowl of water, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. You know, traditionally, they, they, didn't do, they would do this as soon as they walked into a home. They either, did, they either washed their feet themselves, or for those who are wealthy, or for those who are in high positions, this was done by a servant. And let me just remind you, their feet, they were dirty. Y'all feet are already nasty, like kind of grimy with calluses, like hair on the toes and sweaty. But let's just say their feet during this time, they were extra, they were extra nasty, I mean, they wore sandals and had dirt roads. Their feet were always dirty. It was the dirtiest part of their body. And Jesus, he starts to wash his disciples' feet with their dirt cake heels, like with the calluses and the blisters and the hairy knobby toes. Like these are grown man feet, okay? And look starting in verse 6. Okay, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. When I read that, I just think maybe Peter, he was a little self-conscious of his toes. Uh, maybe they were, he thought they were extra hairy or self-conscious. I don't know what was going on there. But he didn't want Jesus to wash his feet, But which was probably the case. He just didn't want Jesus the king. He didn't want him doing a servant's act towards him. Look what Jesus says back. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And so Peter looks at Jesus it's like, why are you washing my feet? And Jesus basically says back to him, just trust me, you don't get it now, you're going to get it later. 
And Peter doesn't like that and says, no, please don't wash my feet. And Jesus uh, makes one of those interesting dual-meaning statements by saying, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter misses what Jesus is saying here with having his sins washed away by Jesus, which they didn't totally understand that yet. And so Peter, he totally missed it. And Peter takes it at surface level because, of course, he wanted to have uh, a part of Jesus' share and says, well, then, Lord, wash my hands and my head, too. Kind of like, well, if that's the case, wash more of me. But like we said, Jesus was speaking, um, he, Jesus was speaking of a spiritual cleansing, not a physical cleansing. And in doing so, Jesus was hinting that there was one person in the room that was not spiritually clean, and that was Judas. And for me, this is part of the story this week that has really shocked me, but we'll, we'll get to that. And look what it says. We're going to keep reading to finish our text. Look at verses 12 to 20. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, if I then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus just uh, washed their feet, and then He explained to them, um, just as He has served them, so should they serve each other. And just to point out, He's not speaking of the action of their service. He's not saying they need to go around washing everybody's feet all the time. But as one commentator put it, uh, he's not speaking of the action, but the attitude of their service. Taking the low place and humbly having a heart of serving each other. Which again reminds us of our main idea. Jesus is our humble servant king. And with this, like I said, I've got four things I want to point out from this story about a life of servant leadership. Because if Jesus is our model to follow, that says just as he has done, so we do also, then let's dive into what Jesus did. And the first and most obvious thing we see is that number one, Jesus served. Jesus, their king, their leader, he served them. The creator God served his creation. He was totally over them. He made them. Jesus was sovereign over them as their king, and yet Jesus still served them. You know, Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So Jesus, our humble King, came to serve. His entire life was marked by serving others. Again, the Creator came to serve His creation. So just think about this uh, with how our relationship with Jesus works. I would argue that almost entire, we're almost entirely on the taking side of the relationship. Kind of like a baby with a mother. Like there's a mutual love, but those cute little cuddly babies that we all cherish, I mean, let's be honest, they're entirely on the receiving side of the relationship. And that's how we are with Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus literally holds the entire world in his hands. He made the earth with his very breath. He knows everything. He sees everything. He has the power to do whatever he wants. He owns the cattle on a thousand hill. He owns it all. And not to mention, Jesus, being God, is entirely unlimited and infinite. And we are entirely limited and finite. Which tells us that the only thing we have to offer Jesus of any value is our worship to him. It's our love back to him. So Jesus gave up his life and died for us. Jesus gave everything and had a life of service knowing that we have nothing to give to him except for our worship and love. We can say it this way. Jesus' life was given and sacrificed to purchase our worship. Which I think tells us a few things. And first, it shows us, I think it shows us, we have nothing of any tangible value to give to Jesus. Like we come with empty hands to Jesus. The gospel tells us that when we trust in Jesus, the thing we bring into the relationship is our sin and disobedience. And God brings divine power, unconditional love, and a life of sacrificial service to us. And we bring sin. And that's just how our relationship with Jesus works. Like, we gain everything, and God gave up His Son. But yet, it's not truly that one-sided, because what we do bring to Jesus is our worship to Him. That's like really all we have to give. Again, Jesus died to purchase our worship, which it calls us to consider how much value God puts on our worship to Him. Because the cost of our worship to God was Jesus' life. A life of total service and continuous giving. Jesus' entire life was give, 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 and our entire relationship with Jesus is ask and receive and receive and sin and sin, except for our worship to him. Again, Jesus died so that we would love and worship God, which, let me say, doesn't speak to the greatness of our worship, but rather it speaks to how much God values our worship. It speaks to God's love for us. The worship we bring to God is kind of like a three-year-old bringing a colored picture to the mother who is a professional artist. Like, the art's not really that great. But why does the mother love it? Not because of the quality of the art, but because they love the person that gave it to them. So whatever worship we bring to God, God loves it. And not because of the quality, but because He loves us. Which should then lead us to ask, What does our worship look like? Like, how do we worship God? Like, why are we talking about worship and serving? And what I want to show you today is that everything about worship in the Bible leads to making ourselves smaller and God bigger. Even offering up praises to God and singing, the author of Hebrews calls it in Hebrews 13 a sacrifice. Because we're saying, God, you're bigger than me and you're greater than me. God, we're in awe of your greatness. Which leads me to say, sacrifice and service are at the heart of worship. Sacrifice and giving of yourself, including loving others and giving to God, it's worship. What we bring back to God is worship, and the way we worship God is through sacrifice and serving. So when we come to God in prayer and Bible reading for personal worship, we're sacrificing time in our day and our mental space for God to then fill it up. Again, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. 
Paul tells us in Romans 12.1, when he talks about spiritual worship, he defines worship as offering up our life as a living sacrifice. We worship Jesus by laying down our life, by being a living sacrifice and humbly serving others. Again, we give back to Jesus and worship Jesus by giving others what he first gave us. And what did Jesus give us? Jesus gave us a life of service. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus gave up heaven to gain our worship. And how do we worship Jesus? We humbly serve. We sacrifice and we put others before ourselves. This is why we say that our time of giving each week is a continuation of our worship. Because when we give of our resources, we're making a sacrifice to the Lord, which is worship. Giving generously and extravagantly is an act of worship to the Lord. Because again, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. If we want to worship the Lord, we serve our spouse. Like we find what they love and make a sacrifice for them. If we want to worship God and give back to God, serve your kids, your family, serve your community, serve your church, your friends, and your neighbors. Like that's worship. We worship God by sacrificing and serving. Yes, part of worship is singing, but it's way more than that. We sing praises to God to make less of ourselves and to make more of God. Well, I'm not a big singing guy. Um, when I first became a Christian, I really didn't like to sing, and honestly, I, I still kind of don't. I drive around in complete silence, like I'm just kind of weird sometimes. I don't know why I do that, but I just do. But God commands us to raise our hands and clap and sing to the Lord. And so each week, I get over myself and sing and clap on Sundays as an act of worship and obedience to the Lord. Because worship is a sacrifice. Serving is a sacrifice. But it's all done out of a response to what God has already done for us. Jesus sacrificed for us. That's our model. Jesus' entire life was giving of himself. And so number one, Jesus served. And his serving was worship to the Lord. But we need to ask, how did Jesus do this? Well, number two, Jesus served in humble submission to God. You know, we talked about this last week. You know, we don't first serve and love others. No, we first love God. And then out of that, secondly, we love and serve others. Again, this order is really important. And Jesus modeled that for us in our text. Look at verse 3. In part of verse 4 again, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So I want to just stop there for a second because this entire situation where Jesus washed his feet, it was prefaced by verse 3. Because as it continues, we see Jesus, he then washed their feet. It says in verse 3, Jesus knew God gave him all things and that he came from God and was going back to God. And then in response to that, he washed their feet. So again, number two, Jesus served in humble submission to God. Jesus had everything possible at his disposal. Jesus knew he was the Son of God and that came from God and that he was going back to God. Jesus knew whose he was. Jesus knew he was God's Son and he lived out of that identity. This is so important for us because we too often, as followers of Christ, are called, to, because we're also, as followers of Christ, called to the same thing. We could say it this way. We live out of our identity, not for our identity. We worship and serve and sacrifice because we're accepted by God. 
We worship and serve and sacrifice because we're sons and daughters of God, not so we will be accepted by God. That's religious nonsense. We serve because we're God's chosen people that have been given the keys to God's kingdom. We have access to God and His riches, which then moves us to serve. Again, we do not serve and labor for God to make Him happy with us or pleased with us. He's already pleased with us because of our faith in Jesus. Listen, there's, there's no amount of serving that can make God love us any more than He already does. Jesus served and washed his, the disciples' feet because he is, he is God's son. Like, that's his identity. And he was expressing the heart of God to his disciples. Now, this is so important because a sermon on serving, it can really heap on guilt and make people feel bad for not serving and, of, and needing, or needing to serve more. And I just want to totally reject that and say the heart of God is for you to first delight in Jesus. You doing more and serving more out of obligation or duty, it will wear you out and burn you out, and that is not the heart of God. Worshipful sacrifice is a response to the goodness of God, not an attempt to earn God's favor. And there's a subtle thing that happens in our hearts and minds and life that can make us think we need to do more to make God happy. We have to say to that, absolutely not. Because God is already 100% fully happy with you because of Jesus Christ. Worshipful sacrifice is compelled out of our identity in relationship with Jesus, not to try and make it better. And we get this order right in our life of worshipful sacrifice as a response to God and not something for God as a duty. You know what it does? It humbles us. Because we recognize it's not us, but it's God working in us. And we say, no, uh, don't look at me, look at the Lord. I mean, just, just think about this. Maybe this will help illustrate it. You know, we see in verse 3 that Jesus came from God and was going back to God and that all things were given to him. And so just imagine with me this scenario. So imagine Jesus with God, sitting next to God in heaven, being lavished by the love of God, sitting with God, being, being with God daily at his table in an entirely ongoing, never-ending basis, lovingly being served by God all the time. And so Jesus always saw the heart of God, sees the heart of God on full display, and is always seeing and knowing and experiencing God's never-ending faithfulness and His steadfast, unconditional love. And every single waking hour of every day, Jesus is just in awe and overwhelmed by God's endless supply of love. You know, I didn't do it this year, uh, but for the past seven or eight years, every spring, I'd plant way too many tomato plants, uh, like 10 of them all at the same time. And this happened every year. About two weeks in July, uh, we would just be swimming in tomatoes giving them away to every person that walked in our house, kind of like, here, take five tomatoes on your way out. We can't eat them all. And so I just kind of imagine that picture. Uh, Jesus kind of like, uh, I just imagine Jesus kind of like that all the time. Just so overwhelmed by the constant love of God. Just like, here you go. I've got so much of it. I need to give all of this away all the time. So here is Jesus with storehouses filled with the love of God, eager to give it away. And then he's, at, he's there at this dinner. 
And he sees his disciples knowing their fears and worries, knowing their insecurities and longings. And Jesus, being so filled with the storehouses of God's love, doesn't command them to serve, but he offers them the love of God and he washes their feet. He takes the dirtiest part of their body, he gets on his hands and knees, and he shows them a visible picture of the heart of God. He gives them part of what he had stored up from the love of God. Showing that God does not take from us, he does not shun us, but yet God will go into the messiest parts of our life and lovingly and gently cleanse us and care for us, lavishing us with his love. Jesus didn't wash their feet to impress God. No, Jesus washed their feet because he knew the love of God. And something we need to get here is that Jesus didn't wash their feet because their feet were dirty. Now, yes, their feet were probably dirty. But why would Jesus get up in the middle of dinner if he was washing their feet because they were dirty? They, they would have washed them at the beginning that was, if that was why he washed them. No, Jesus didn't wash their feet because their feet were dirty. He washed their feet because he wanted to show them a picture of the heart of God. Jesus wanted them to see a picture of God's heart, willingly humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant, as Paul talked about in Philippians 2, so that they could see a visible expression of, love, of the loving and humble heart of God. So that they too would then be able to show a broken and messy world a picture of that same heart. You see, serving and sacrificing to our spouses and friends and children and roommates in that church. Yes, we can serve because of needs. And yes, knowing the needs helps us to know where we focus our attention. But more importantly, we serve as an expression of the heart of God to a world and a community that is starving to see God's heart. Because when we serve and sacrifice in humility, looking to gain nothing in return, we're displaying the heart of God to the world. When we serve our spouses and kids, and neighbors making sacrifices, expecting nothing in return, we're displaying the heart of God. You know, there are never-ending needs in our world, community, in our church, in our lives. You know, we have more needs for more kids volunteers for Kids Week. We have more needs for kids volunteers during the services this summer. We have several serving needs with set up and tear down. I and mean, we could go on and on about the ongoing needs in our church. We could go on and on about the needs in our community, and not to mention our own personal needs and all the worldwide needs. But God shows us today his storehouse is full of his overwhelming supply of love that moves his people to worshipfully sacrifice. And not out of guilt or based on needs, but because it's an expression of the heart of God to a broken and messy world. Again, we serve out of God's love, not for his love. We serve, we serve from our identity, not for our identity. Well, there's so much to say here, but I want to keep moving uh, and make an observation about Jesus' interaction with Peter. And so remember, Jesus, he was washing the disciples' feet, and Peter basically says, Jesus, why are you washing my feet? You shouldn't be washing my feet. And Jesus said in verse 8, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And as we've seen here, it shocked Peter, and he said, wash my hands and my head also. And what I want to point out here quickly about this entire interaction is that number three, Jesus served patiently. Maybe this seems insignificant, but several times in our passage, Jesus mentioned that they will struggle to understand what Jesus was doing. He said it with Peter in verse 7. Jesus said, what I'm doing you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. And then later he asked again, do you understand? And there's something, there was something significant about the disciples 
not knowing what Jesus was doing. While Jesus was serving them, Jesus had to be patient while he was serving. Which leads me to say this will happen often when we're serving. We should not be surprised when God moves us to serve and sacrifice in a specific way, and then we're left asking, God, I don't understand why I'm doing this. Or there will be times when we're trying to serve and love others and show them the love of Jesus, and they totally miss it, like Peter. They miss it and don't understand it. And what we see here with his disciples a little confused, we're reminded that a life of service doesn't mean a life of recognition. And it doesn't mean a life of praise. No, a life of service is simply doing what God calls us to without expecting any recognition, and it requires both humility and patience. Jesus served them, and they didn't praise him immediately back. Like, this is biblical leadership, and this is what we expect from our elders and our leaders here. Leaders don't seek out recognition or a title or even expect it. As the common phrase is said, we look for leaders who are more eager to pick up the towel than a title. Biblical leadership serves patiently, understanding that it's not for recognition. New City, if Jesus needed to be patient and humble and serve without recognition, we can be confident that we could be called, we're called to do the same. And then lastly, the one thing that shocked me the most in this entire passage was the fact that Judas, his betrayer, was there. And yet he still washed his feet. Leading us to number four, Jesus served Judas. You know, all week long, this is one that has kind of caught my breath, seeing the passage in an entirely new way. Because in verse two, at the very beginning of our text, John sets up the scene for Judas being there. And the author of John goes out of his way to show us that he's there multiple times with knowing, uh, while knowing that uh, Judas would betray him. And then in the passage right after that, after he's washed their feet, the disciples don't know who will betray Jesus because you know, Jesus knew, but the disciples, they were clueless, which tells us what Jesus did not do. Like Jesus did not wash 11 disciples' feet and leave Judas out. <laughs> like he didn't shame Judas, making it obvious who it would be. No, Judas was there and Jesus washed his feet. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. Jesus humbled himself as a lowly servant before the man that would sell him off. Just let that sit. Judas, the guy that was close with Jesus, spent time with him, listened to his teaching. Jesus knew he would betray him in less than a few hours from this moment. And hours before Judas betrayed him, with Jesus fully knowing it would happen, Jesus still washed his feet. I don't know about you, but it's one thing to serve those you love and who love you back. But it's an entirely different thing to wash the feet of those who betray you and reject you and turn you over to be crucified and killed. But yet, church, that's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. When Jesus was overwhelmed by God's love, it moved him to wash his betrayer's feet. It moved him to sacrifice and humble himself and serve someone that he knew would have him killed. You see, that's hard. That's not easy. Yet that's the heart of God towards us. We betray Jesus in our sin, and yet he loves us and serves us anyways. 
Jesus' love for his people is not conditional. It's not conditional of our love towards him. It's not conditional of our faithfulness towards him. The heart of God is to chase after and lay down his life and to serve the whole world, even those who wholeheartedly reject him. Well, there's, there's, no, there's nothing in the scriptures that show what I'm about to say, but if, if, we're about, if you were to just kind of imagine the scene here, with Jesus washing Judas' feet, if I could just imagine this scene with, him, with Jesus washing his feet, I would see Jesus in that moment while he's kneeling on the floor, sitting in front of Judas with his feet in the water basin, washing Judas' feet, just looking at him, staring straight in his eyes, moved to tears of compassion and also righteous anger knowing that Judas is an image bearer made in God's image while yet at the same time defaming the image and name of God because his heart was overtaken by the devil, as it says in verse 2. Yet he still washed his feet. And when Jesus said to love your enemies, when he washed the feet of Judas, he put that on full display. And yes, Jesus was all-knowing, and so in doing this, he was still all-wise and so yes, we love our enemies and we too should be wise and seek counsel in the process. And I'm not sure how this applies to you today, but let me just ask you that question. Who are the people in your life that are hard to love? Who are the people that have rejected you or betrayed you? And I want to call us to just consider the heart of Christ and his uncanny, abil- uncanny ability to wash the feet of his betrayer. That's what the love of God moved Jesus to do. That's the heart and deep love of Jesus that is available to all those who call on the name of the Lord. And let me remind us all that when we profess faith in Jesus, the heart and power and deep love that Jesus has and showed here, that same love dwells within us. Like he's given us access to it and calls us to come to him, lay down our life and respond to him in worshipful sacrifice. Again, to worship God is to sacrifice is to lay down our life at the feet of Jesus as he has modeled for us. And so let me ask, how is God calling you to sacrifice today? Because it's an act of worship. Who are the people that God calls us to serve that likely won't serve us back? And I want to end quickly with this. Jesus said in the second half of verse 8 to Peter, he said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And as we saw earlier, Peter did not understand this because the washing Jesus was referring to was not a foot washing with water, but a spiritual washing by the blood of Jesus. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just wash the dirtiest parts of our body. No, by his shed blood, he washed all our sins away. Yes, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, but even more so, he washed their souls with his shed blood. And just as Jesus said to Peter, if he does not wash us, we can't have a share with him. And so if we have not put our faith in Jesus, trusting that the blood of Jesus washes our sins away, we have no share with Jesus. We can't spend eternity with Jesus. And so let me ask, has Jesus washed you by his blood? Let me remind us all, it, it comes by faith alone. So it's very simply put, have you put your faith in Jesus? Will you have an eternal share with Jesus? And if not, I call you today and pray that you would put your faith in Jesus today. Let's pray. God, you're so kind to us. God, you serve us. You gave up your entire life for us. 
so that we would come and worship you. God, you died for our worship. God, you served those that were hard to serve. You loved your enemies. God, you've called us to a mighty task to sacrifice and to give of ourselves. Father, we pray that we would be a people that are just so overwhelmed by your love that we would just continually give it away. God, you've done great things in us. Father, we pray that we would continue to worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.